It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm Rachel Campos Duffy. I'm Will Kane, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, July 6th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Millions of Americans soon have to make payments again on federal student loans as a COVID pause ends. But despite the Supreme Court blocking the president's debt forgiveness plan... There's a lot of money on the table, and it's really going to be worth it for borrowers to investigate what benefits are available to them, because there's been really a, a, a radical expansion of that. And Lisa Brady. Crime is nothing new, but crime fighting has changed with mixed results. It's, it's much more difficult to do the things that worked in the past now, largely because of the politics of the uh, of the moment. We speak with former New York City Police Commissioner Ray Kelly. And I'm Dr. Ben Carson. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Now what? That's the question for all the Americans who have to start paying off student loans again this fall. The federal government paused that when COVID hit in 2020. Now, 20 million Americans hoped they wouldn't have to pay ever again. President Biden's student loan debt forgiveness plan would have wiped out all that they owe. Others who were eligible would have had ten dollars to $20,000 of their debt lopped off. But the Supreme Court blocked the plan like Republicans had hoped. Congresswoman Nancy Mace tells Fox... When you take out a loan in this country, you have to take responsibility for your debts. You have to pay that loan back. And this was a program that was started during COVID when people were really struggling. COVID is over. Even President Biden has admitted COVID is over. But the president, after Friday's ruling vowed to come up with a plan B. I'm never going to stop fighting for you. We'll use every tool at our disposal to get you the student debt relief you need and reach your dreams. It's good for the economy. It's good for the country. It's going to be good for you. Now, the justices ruled that he overstepped his authority with that debt forgiveness plan. Basically, what the Supreme Court said is not that we can't cancel student loans, but that Congress needs to do it. The president can't do it. Beth Akers is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Despite that, we have the president saying, OK, I'm going to try again. Basically do the same thing, except use a different legal authority, which wasn't explicitly ruled out in the Supreme Court ruling, though I think most reasonable people believe that it's inconsistent with what the court said he can do. But essentially what's going to happen is going to try the whole thing again, and we will likely get caught up in the courts again and be on repeat with this. In the meantime, we are going to be asking student borrowers to start paying their loans back again. And this is actually a huge deal. We've had borrowers on pause with their student loan repayment since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So back in 2020, we paused student loan repayment. And we've had a lot of things change policy-wise and mechanics-wise in that time with how federal student loans work. And yet we're now asking borrowers, like, go ahead, jump back in. It's time to start making those payments again. Okay. Who has to do it? Everybody? Are some people going to be exempted? Did interest compound during that time? Where are we? 
there's been a, a really a large benefit to people who have had their loans paused during this time. No interest is going to accrue, has accrued. Um, that will be starting in September. And at the same time, your loans come due in September. Anybody who has a federal student loan is now expected to start paying that again. But there is a 12-month, I think they're calling it an on-ramp to get borrowers back into the program. So during this period, interest is going to accrue, but there will be no penalties if you miss a payment. Okay. So my advice to borrowers is do not try to game this. There's not a huge benefit from not paying and trying to catch up later. Really, you should just get on board with starting to get back in the pattern of repaying your loans on a monthly basis as soon as you can, ideally starting in September. If you, though, are out of work or it's difficult and you know you can't make the payments, why would you try? Well, great question. And, you know, something that has been neglected in the conversation about student loan cancellation is that we actually already have some pretty aggressive safety nets that are in place for people who are in that position. So these are existing programs. Apart from what the president was trying to do, they were already in place before the pause took effect, but a lot of borrowers didn't know they were there. If you're looking for them, they're called income-driven repayment programs. And it's a it's complicated to get involved in them, but everyone is eligible and it's worth it if you can't afford to make your payments as expected. I know the administration is also working to try to make it so people at certain income levels don't have to make any payments. How does this work? The president has proposed to make those programs actually a lot more generous. So while in the past, maybe you, you were not eligible because your income was sufficiently high, we're actually making those thresholds so much higher now that a lot more people are going to be able to qualify to make reduced payments and ultimately to have their loans forgiven. Just to give a sense of how generous we're getting here, the Treasury only expects to get back about 50 cents on every dollar that's loaned out through the program going forward. So there's a lot of money on the table, and it's really going to be worth it for borrowers to investigate what benefits are available to them, because there's been really a, a, a radical expansion of that. You mentioned the Supreme Court said it's up to Congress to deal with getting rid of student loans. Mm -hmm. We have a small majority for Republicans in the House. The Senate, Democrats don't have enough votes to do anything that they want to do exactly. So how right. is Congress going to come up with something as we get closer to an election year of 2024? Well, the truth is Congress is not going to come up with something. The reality is that mask student loan cancellation is a terrible idea. It tends to benefit people who have high income the most because those are the people who on average have the most student debt. Democrats had a chance to pass student loan cancellation when they had a slim majority in the House, the Senate, and held the White House. They could have passed it through reconciliation, but they didn't. And the reason is because there's actually a lot of reasonable Democrats out there who knew that this was a bad idea. So we need Congress to act in order to do something. But what they need to do is make the existing system work better, not kind of trash it with some sort of mass cancellation program. There are, though, people who are, you know, their kids are getting close to that college age and they're looking and there are colleges that are like $90,000 a year. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. I mean, I know on the one hand, it, there's a lot of people who talk about, well, college can't be free. That's mm -hmm. we can't have a giveaway. The federal government can't do that. But at the same time, how do we try to make college more affordable? I mean, these are very high numbers. Yeah. You know, I like to point out that a lot of times those price tags, even though they're high, are actually still worth it. I mean, if you're paying $90,000 to go to Harvard, I mean, 
probably still a bargain if you're studying something that's going to put you on path to a high earnings occupation. If, so I if you're doing that. But if, if you're doing something like philosophy, how does that how do you pay all that off? Well, you know, I think we really need to encourage people to be shopping a bit more strategically when it comes to college and having their eyes open to what's in front of them. And, you know, I encourage people not to think of college as a golden ticket, you know, that gets them automatically to the middle or upper class, but instead to look at the data, say, what is it that I want to do with this degree? Use it as a tool and think about whether the cost is actually worth the path that it's putting you on. I mean, if you're going to study philosophy and you don't have a trust fund, you might want to do that at a public institution where you're not going to rack up, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. So I, you know, we haven't encouraged people to be pragmatic in that way about college. We've talked about it as something that people should be entitled to do. The idea of following your passion. That's a great idea. The vast majority of Americans cannot afford that. And we do not have a system that enables people to afford that. Instead, we have a pay for yourself type system. um, And yet we pretend that we can have this fantasy of everyone following their passion. It's just not realistic. You need to look at the data. The data is out there now on a website called thecollegescorecard.com. It tells you what previous graduates have earned from every major at every institution that participates in the federal student aid program. Go there, compare that to the cost that you're potentially being charged and make a decision for yourself whether or not this is something that works. You cannot just blindly take on student debt. Um, The government is not going to bail you out in the way that President Biden has suggested. You know, there have been people in this debate about giving people debt forgiveness or even in the on the on the left they want the free college education there have been yeah. those who say you know it's just not fair to people who paid off their loans or people who didn't get a loan in the first place and went off in the working world the business world maybe they got a loan for uh, their own small business maybe they had an apprenticeship maybe they're in a certain vocation yeah. they went into plumbing or some other area of expertise is that something that more people are looking into do you believe You know, I think it's a fair concern. Certainly, if I could go back in time and have gone to a more expensive college and borrowed loans to make my graduate school experience cushier, I would have done that. And I think that, you know, life is sometimes unfair. So I don't dwell necessarily on that as a problem with this policy, but I worry about what it means going forward. And, you know, if I'm sending my kids to school next year, I might be thinking, you know, I did save some money for them to go, but I'm going to have them borrow and, you know, that let them potentially get a benefit through the government. So I think what happens is that when we make these implicit promises of money coming back so that people don't have the impression that they need to pay, they're going to spend more. And then we're going to get institutions charging more because they understand that their students don't necessarily think they're going to have to pay the full bill. So we get a system that's kind of rolling out of control in that way. So yes, the fairness is something that I think irritates a lot of people, myself included. But from a policy perspective, it's probably not the most problematic piece. All right. You gave the website, you know, the scorecard where people can look at degrees and the cost of education and whether it's worth it or not. For those who have a loan now dealing with the upcoming um, repayment, rescheduling from the COVID pause, is there a way they can look to see what programs, where should they go to find out if they're eligible for any kind of help? The first step is going to be to log into a website called studentaid.gov. That's a 
government website where you can track down what loans you have and we'll tell you who your servicer is. A servicer is basically just who collects your check, who's going to answer the phone if you have a question. And then you reach out to that servicer in order to get information about repayment plans. They're also available on a website um, for the Federal Department of Education. They're listed as income-driven repayment plans, but your servicer is the one who can really get you signed up for it, but also tell you which ones you're eligible for. Um, so that's the first step. And, you know, I'm really expecting that these systems to get bogged down as we have millions of borrowers trying to, you know, reconnect with their lender or their their loans and their servicers. And so I would encourage people who know they have loans that are going to be coming due in September to log into that website as soon as possible. If you don't have your login, it may take a little while to verify your your identity in order to be able to log in. So it, it's a bit of a process and everyone's going to have to do it. And uh, it's worth doing sooner than later. And that's studentaid.gov? That's right. Beth Akers, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, nice to talk with you. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. This is Dr. Ben Carson with your Fox News commentary coming up. America's crime crisis. Several major U.S. cities are recovering after a holiday weekend wave of gun violence. On what was supposed to be a beautiful summer evening, this armed and armored individual wreaked havoc, firing with a rifle at their victims, seemingly at random. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw on the mass shooting Monday night that left five dead and young children among the wounded. The 40-year-old suspect held without bail on multiple charges, including murder. There were deadly shootings at block parties and other gatherings in Baltimore, Shreveport, and Fort Worth. Where violence uh, and guns marred Uh, a holiday weekend. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser after a drive-by shooting injured nine in the nation's capital. All of this likely to fuel more debate about gun laws. But around the country, crime in general has also been getting more attention, especially retail theft, so prolific that it's prompted some major chains to close locations or lock up products. And street crimes, with many disturbing videos of people being beaten, robbed, or both, including on mass transit. I think crime has not changed radically. I think how we approach crime has changed significantly. Ray Kelly is New York City's former and longest serving police commissioner and now CEO of Guardian Group. The death of George Floyd was a watershed moment for law enforcement. Up until that time, police used the tactic uh, under the rubric of proactive strategies. You know, a a forward-looking, somewhat aggressive policy to fight crime. After the death of George Floyd, as I'm sure you're well aware, there were 300 major disturbances in the country. Uh, All sorts of laws were passed to restrict the police on what they could do. Thousands of police officers left the profession of policing. And uh, police, quite frankly, they backed off because they're careers were in danger because of some of the the laws and some of the positions that were taken by politicians throughout the country. Hmm. So are there tools no longer being used that you think should be brought back? 
Oh, yes, I do. I think it's a pejorative term, no question about it, but stop uh, questioning frisk is a legitimate police function. It's a tool that should be in every police officer's toolbox. So it's codified in virtually every state in the union. And we had a lawsuit here in, in New York City, and uh, we had appealed that decision, which said that the practices of the NYPD was unconstitutional as applied, which nobody ever heard that phrase before. So the police in New York City and in other jurisdictions, too, as well, have been uh, restricted in using that tactic. And uh, it's largely not being used, certainly not being used to the extent it should be used. In addition, something else that uh, we've done here in New York, or the police department, that the mayor has done, has limited what we call the anti-crime units. You'd like to think everybody's anti-crime, but there is a special unit, units that do this sort of work. But they do it in plain clothes. They do it using taxi cabs and trucks and maybe uniforms of delivery people, that sort of thing. But it's been very effective, and it's been used the NYPD for decades. That has essentially been eliminated. So there's really no effective tool that counters the street crime. And that's where crime continues to go up in New York City. Uh, and other other jurisdictions as well. So those two things, I think, if implemented, they would make a significant difference here. But can they be implemented now without having officers accused more often of racial profiling? Is it more difficult today to try to strike that balance? Oh, there's no question about it. The real serious question is whether or not the political leadership will allow tools like these to be re-implemented? And the answer right now, I think, is no. There would be uh, organized uh, outrage about implementation of these uh, tactics and what the mayor here sees as part of his base would would definitely be uh, energized to uh, try to stop these, uh, these things from happening. And we have to also understand that the police have been held back, have been restricted in a very significant way. Uh, For instance, there is something called qualified immunity, which is a defense that all civil servants have if they're accused of, of wrongdoing. Basically, it's a good faith defense, a good faith effort. The city council here specifically prohibited police officers from using that defense, if in fact they are uh, there too, litigated again. So it means that their well-being, their family's well-being, perhaps they own homes or whatever, all of that is in jeopardy if in fact they get personally sued. So this is some of the sort of strange and bizarre things that, that happen both here and in other major cities throughout the country. So when you compare you know, say New York City decades ago to the improvements on crime that happened in the 90s to now um, in terms of what works and what doesn't. Do you think the overarching factor in that is the ability to focus on street crime and and how that is done? Is that really the common denominator here in terms of fighting crime in general? Yeah. And if you look at the 
uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg administration in New York. That's a 20 year period of time, which was a, uh, a rebirth almost. The murder rate during that period of time went down almost 90 percent. So obviously tactics and strategies that were used by those two administrations were effective. They worked. Mayor de Blasio came in here and basically started to uh, dismantle and destroy the criminal justice system. And that's pretty much where we are now. Even though he's out of office, we have a new mayor. But uh, that's kind of right now where we are. I don't see it turning around anytime soon, unfortunately. So I think we're going to be stuck here for a while. People in New York are... And they tell me all the time, they're frightened of street crime. They're frightened about going into the subway system. Virtually every day, you read something in the paper, getting smaller and smaller, these articles, because they're more commonplace. But virtually every day, you read something about a stabbing or assault in the subway system. Ridership is way down. I think it's it's only 70% of what it was before the pandemic started. But a lot of it has to do with people just fearful of riding the the transit system and being exposed to potential for street crime. So we have a problem here. It's a big problem. The New York City mayor and the New York governor tend to disagree on the, in terms of the potential for improvement on crime, um, gun violence for issue being an issue across the U.S. right now. The New York governor has pointed to programs targeting illegal guns as part of the reason for declining crime, at least recently. Um, No, are, it, it, are those, it, those, you don't think those programs are working? Yeah, no, shootings are down. Murders are down. That's a good thing. Why they're down is open to debate. But other crimes are up. Crime was up 25% last year in New York City. It's up about a percent and a half this year. And, and shootings are down. But <laughs> there's a lot of other crime that's, that's happening that continues to, to go up. It's about, it's like 40% above what it was two years ago. So, you know, obviously they're going to put a put a new coat of paint on it and say that things are fine. Well, they're not. Unfortunately, I lived here all my life. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it's a different feeling on the street these days. How much could a renewed focus on the notion of community policing help, that notion of building relationships at the community level. Is there enough of that happening? Or are people trying to go back to it more around the country? I think it's just a buzz term that's used. It means different things in different jurisdictions. The answer, in my opinion, is focus, focus, focus on crime, on violations of the law. The police are asked to do a lot of different things these days. I think they got to get back to basics. And that is uh, crime fighting. And of course, they have obstacles. We have district attorneys now who uh, refuse to prosecute a lot of crimes, uh, taking a prosecutorial discretion to an extreme. And that is, I, I see that as a, a problem. So it makes doing what was done in the past extremely difficult. In the past, we had obviously a teamwork between the district attorney, the police, and the, and the courts. In New York City, many of the criminal court uh, judges are alumni of the public defender, uh, public defender department in the in the city. So uh, it's, it's much more difficult to do the things that work 
in the past now, largely because of the politics of the uh, of the moment. What advice do you give to members of the public who are afraid, who are concerned about the level of street crime and, and the things that are going on around the country? To be very aware of their surroundings. Uh, New York has great population density. So, you know, if you're going into your building, you've got to look around. Just be aware when you're in the transit system. Try to uh, go to a car where the conductor is. Uh, if you go to the extreme, the end cars, the front car, a lot of times they are underpopulated and they may be, uh, you know, more dangerous because of that. Uh, but it's a question of being alert, being aware, uh, knowing where you are. Don't use your phone uh, out in public if you can, if you can avoid it. Uh, it's just, you know, the world has changed and we have to change with it if you, <laughs> you want to survive. Former NYPD police commissioner and now CEO of Guardian Group, Ray Kelly, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Ben Carson. What's on your mind? On June 29, the Supreme Court released its much-anticipated decision and students for fair admissions versus Harvard, ruling that both Harvard and the University of North Carolina's consideration of race in their admissions process is unconstitutional. This landmark decision, which effectively eliminates the practice of affirmative action in university admissions, is another major win for constitutionalism from the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts wrote in the majority opinion that Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. He concluded, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Unfortunately, discriminating on the basis of race is exactly what universities in this country have been doing for decades, all under the cover of law. This state-sanctioned discrimination threw merit out the window and instead make race a chief priority for admissions, all at the expense of white and Asian Americans because of the color of their skin. For example, one study shows that Asian American students must score 140 points higher than white students, 270 points higher than Hispanic students, and 450 points higher than black students on the SAT just to have an equal shot an admission to Harvard University. Americans of all stripes should abhor this sort of outright racial discrimination from our public institutions. Our nation, while imperfect, has undergone noble yet arduous struggles to rid ourselves of discrimination based on the color of one's skin. Race-based affirmative action not only pulls down certain groups, but it also reinforces the harmful notion that minority students are less qualified to be successful than their peers and cannot achieve excellence on their own merits without built-in institutional advantages. This shift away from merit comes with major consequences too. 
while I was serving as the director of pediatric neurosurgery during my time in medicine at Johns Hopkins, I quickly realized that nobody with a loved one on the operating table cared about whether the surgeon was black, white, or any other color of the rainbow. All they cared about was whether or not this was the best person for the job. In this sense, putting aside merit and emphasizing external qualities like race can put actual lives in jeopardy and harm the progress of entire industries at large. This decision to overturn affirmative action and outlaw race-based discrimination is a major victory from a constitutional and legal perspective. But more fundamentally, this is a moral win for the idea of America itself. Our nation was founded upon the creed that all men are created equal. Our constitution guarantees us equal rights as Americans, not as whites, blacks, Asians, Hispanics, or any other racial group, but as citizens of our shared republic. That decision, enabled by President Donald Trump's historic and courageous appointments to the Supreme Court, is a major victory for our nation's founding promise of equal rights. And all Americans should celebrate this decision for upholding the fundamental American truth that all men are created equal. This is Dr. Ben Carson. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for season three of my limited time podcast, Everything Will Be Okay, based on my best-selling book of the same name. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.